let us uh, probably look at uh, this whole veda being north indian and all that yeah yeah now you have uh, two strong tantra practicing regions one is tamil nadu one is kashmir yeah so there is nothing like <laughs> this is a tantric region uh, territorially you can't make that distinction as east north south or anything right each right. but we will need to again understand this um, the cultural geography the sacred geography and basically the each region let us say has its own each desha let us say it has its own uh, unique uh, geographic and cultural traits and the practices in those regions are more suited to those regions yeah. so kashmir you have bengal you have tamil nadu you have madhya desha you have where plains are there you have more uh, easy smartasharata practice adoption so it is understandable and uh, the other dimension to it is the urban rural uh, setup the more urban rural setups you have the more things naturally become smartasharata oriented veda oriented because veda also blended with it all the dharma shastras all these things your governing principles your social order so all these things naturally came as one uh, setup and the more you go let us say towards forest towards the burials there are practices that certain traditions have which are suited to those regions so it is also your civilizational distinction it is not a traditional distinction as if this is a shakta and that is vaidika this difference also has a lot to do with how your civilization progressed your urban footprint has increased how your rural footprint has increased naturally the your forest and the uh, tribal practices would be in a decline there so and there there would be some level of conflict always between you can't say this is unacceptable just because it is not palatable to your urban uh, lifestyle right, right right that kind of tendency would be there obviously in those practitioners and there were bitter uh, conflicts also and these conflicts were more harmoniously dealt with when we were independent and these conflicts became quite problematic and they became social stigmas and all these under the british yeah, yeah. now there was a caste uh, angle brought into it there was a you know this whole mutual untouchability it was not actually one sided untouchability it was a mutual untouchability correct correct so all these things came i mean let us not go into that whole social uh, discrimination yeah. all those problems that's a different dimension but in the context of traditions this mutual untouchability developed it also uh, desirable or undesirable probably a timely thing that happened was earlier if you see you could have a shaiva you could have a vaishnava you could have a ganapatiya every family member had his own ishtadevata he probably subscribed to his own uh, guruji and it's not as if the whole family has to go to only one guru or even one tradition yeah but over time a lot of groups blended their social uh, group and cultural group with the religious group the best example you have is sikhs and then the lingayats more prominently in the south uh, so what happened is that these became endogamous groups and they also so they became religious caste units but more medieval in uh, in their origin so both 
ஜெனரேட்ரேட்டிவிட்டி Uh, absolutely and at least in my head the way i sort of understand it at least the the approach that was essentially taken in the in the indian subcontinent larger than indian subcontinent is that if you are thirsty you go to the water so you want knowledge you want something to come to your benefit you go to it it won't come to you and it will certainly not try to force itself to get say the drink me so so our approach was the other way around is that you have to seek you have to go and get if you want something you go and get it yes some teachers will be there who are generally making it more available and some will be highly secretive so you have to basically in fact even those cases papers. even those cases we most of the challenges if we see the stories yeah it's as if some guru has come and people are going to him somebody has happened he goes and challenges him rather yes. than that fellow asking him to believe or anything correct correct absolutely absolutely and so so it is it is the reverse of what we actually see today uh is that here as thirsty you would go to the water and it brought a completely different dimension to how and which is to my mind we were never a society of tolerance i mean there was tolerances if you have to you don't like yeah, the you don't have tolerance tolerate it exists just as you exist uh, correct so it is everybody is seeking something everybody wants something if you don't want something you just be nobody bothers with you as well yes your parent might tell you do this do this. you you will seek as much as you want you seek yeah. wealth or knowledge whatever you want and so therefore this tension was non existent in the in the old days in a in a theological religious sort of sense it is probably on those days was also a blend of science and religion i mean many things that you consider today as part of religion were probably science or mathematics from the ancient past so i find it also immensely interesting the nastika schools um and in particular i'll, I'll ask that question earlier but the nastikas will have I mean, the oldest one is probably the Charvaka. I am not sure if the Charvaka is mentioned in the Vedas, but the Ajivikas and there are a few others. About Ajayana only. Yeah, yeah. For Charvaka, as I understand, the perceptor for the Charvaka tradition is Brahaspati. Uh, again, I may be wrong way, but my understanding is it is Brahaspati. And what is always, always pondered with this is that Brahaspati is also the guru of the. uh devatas no that may not be the same guy but it may not be the same brahaspati he may be from the same family but not necessarily Never but it is, it is also such an old tradition because right from the ramayana it's there is the description of the charvakas and the charvakas i understand it completely reject the idea of dharma they completely reject the idea of multiple lives of karma etc so they function like how any of the semitic faiths will function today so the, more than semitic probably hedonist correct so so we have one life just maximize that life uh, make what you want to make out of it yes. make what you want to and that was also strangely that was somehow it had acceptability uh, for the other darshanas people who followed any of the other darshanas 
the others i don't even have so much of an understanding of the other nastika traditions but they are these nastika traditions which say vedas are bogus completely they essentially and i would say jaina and bodha would probably be part of the nastika tradition though some would say that gautama buddha's last teachers were sankhya philosophers or his last masters were sankhya so it sort of yeah. it, it came off from some sort of sankhya tradition uh but but these rejected the idea of either a creator god they didn't reject necessarily the idea of uh, demi beings so for example uh, buddhism has demi beings has got uh, all kinds of demi beings jainism has got there is a jaina tantra and there is a buddha tantra so it's also talking in terms of how some of these it is dealing with aspects of existence of the universe of dealing with beings of a certain kind so let us say take bauda why is bauda as nastika they have obviously not accepted uh, veda as the pramana right rejection is a very strange thing simple it's not a question of whether you see it as a valid knowledge or not Buddha himself uh, invokes veda whenever he taunts brahmins right you don't follow your veda that kind of right right but so he is not saying it is not valid knowledge he is saying that it is not his axiomatic source he will not depend on it to establish his hypothesis right right so veda is an axiomatic source and right? just like the shruti matra bhaga of the agamas and the entire veda in fact is right. a axiomatic source axioms are used to establish your hypothesis in a formal structure yes yes so there is there is buddha but buddha buddhism is clearly uh, it is in the context of there is already the vedic approach that is there and so buddha is sort of thinking through and working through it the jainas on the other hand uh, many of them say that they are the oldest religion i mean i think yeah, the term is used in the modern context uh, but they are actually ascribing um periodicity to their system which here we need to understand every school has an infinite timeline it has no beginning in time bautha the bodhisattva can come in many forms he is eternal uh-huh. similarly jaina also has an eternal uh, thing where, where the beginning so nobody has any fixed beginning in time right so this whole thing of this is before or this is after everybody is anadi so there is no conflict there and nobody is trying to prove that the other is younger or anything correct correct they just believe what everybody has is uh, eternal origins and all that so young and old is probably as you describing it and i completely agree is more a function of the modern era where where the whole historic uh, literalism and the obsession with dates has come where where historicity has a gives you a greater right to assert superiority <laughs> exactly uh, as if and it includes on on the side of the hindus where we use historicity yeah. older is better i mean older is not necessarily always better uh, better is better for the sake that it is better if you are logically able to establish it as better yes and, and for that time tomorrow it may not remain better anymore so uh, uh, absolutely but this whole astika astika what i am trying yeah. to get at distinction of taking veda as the axiomatic source has a lot of implications in how your 
uh, worldly affairs are dealt let us say you have created your dharma shastras your state craft is there even bauddha never disputed that there are four varnas it never disputed that it in fact bauddha kings even wrote inscriptions that they will protect all the four varnas yeah they had no problem in the varnashrama or anything the problem they had was accepting that this is the axiomatic source because if you accept this as an axiomatic source you have to accept atma you have to accept brahman there are a lot of philosophical implications True. which they are rejecting yeah yeah at the social level they accept everything so varna is a separate point that i wanted to sort of no, no, pick no, no, up no. but because asked i am saying that because yeah. being an astika means accepting varna shamas uh, and accepting uh, veda because dharma's source is veda uh, absolutely on the other hand bauddha accepts its own dhamma yeah. which is not very different from dharma yeah yeah but, but it is uh, there is this whole inclination to think in terms of buddhism as a part of the vedic or the old indian tradition whereas it seems to me that it it was so different because at one time india bharata had become largely buddhist and then it went back to being vedic and ritualistic in some way so there was this intellectual push and pull uh, that was happening and it's not necessarily as if they are all the same i mean you've got a lot of today you've got a lot of political no, 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 no. Okay. it was not because bauddha was not a common man religion at any time it was predominantly elitist and it thrived by converting the royal clan right 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 so its mode of ex- expansion was through giving these deepsas to the royal uh, clan members on these things getting those people to act and then using their power to run the thing i mean the whole story of ashoka's conversion is that only so anyway that <laughs> but My- as bauda captured the space that was okay at some point it had appropriated uh, a lot of uh, vedic tantric uh, things the devatas were appropriated the tara indra all these things the concepts like dhamma were appropriated all this was okay at some point then but what happened was not the problematic part was not the rise of bauda the problematic part was the corruption and fall of bauda right at its peak it started once it started getting the rotting at the core then it became a very big baggage to handle so that was when the whole dissolution and uh, of that practice into the common uh, hindu core became very necessary so the corruption of moral corruption a lot, lot of things happened at that time so uh, practitioners anyway were not spiritual practitioners though those aramas became partly they were left empty partly they were used for all secular purposes so at that time there was a need to dissolve it back because if it's corruption more than uh, you know as a tension between two parties or anything so every in fact any good tradition comes with its need it has to go when its need ends if it overlives it is a problem so for indian situation what was required at that time it was done now but because bauda had already appropriated let us say indra and other certain other devas now the shrauta did not have enough vitality to reclaim all that so they had made certain puranic uh, improvisations to bring down the prominence of indra itself rather than reclaiming that from the bauda and reinstating that so 
therefore you see all the shaiva vaishnava all these uh, rise post buddha and 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 so at least as i sort of have experienced it a uh, lot of the traditional for lack of better term i'll use the term hindus a lot of the traditional including the traditionally sort of strongly oriented brahmins etc would sort of they would dismiss buddhism uh, i mean they would not talk of it with any degree of reverence whereas when you look at the indian state it talks about the buddha with such great reverence uh, and it's a it's a dichotomy that you can sort of see very clearly particularly when you look at the sort of the it's a logical consequence the indian yeah. state hates hinduism therefore it will revere everything that are uh, problematic for hindus right. so it will posit communism it will posit socialism it will posit buddhism anything except vedic tantric traditions right 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 it's not necessarily just limited to diversity it is i think the underpinning is that it is meant for the individual or a small family to seek what they want um it is not tolerance oriented it is not peace oriented it is just this is what i want i find it, it was harmonious if you and look at the bloody history of uh, europe or middle east obviously your uh, indian religious progress has been phenomenally harmonious and peaceful now we can't, we, can't, we can't deny that but yes that does not mean there were uh, absolutely no conflicts and it is all severe conflicts i mean we have had nobody has had something like the mahabharata exactly. in in europe or in america so so exactly. so so we and and part of our existence was a martial existence i mean we were not a timid yes. people so this timidity that is being thrust upon uh, is that you are the land of the buddhas you should be non violent is i would think is alien uh, the are a character is not alien actually this you see this tension in the past also where uh, bauddhas had actually weakened the state and the shungas let us say after ashoka shungas had uh, reinstated the martial culture to an extent to bring back the vitality yeah. so the loss of vitality or the loss of uh, military culture probably was all in fact it's not as if ashoka was a peaceful like guy he had, yeah. <laughs> he had <laughs> engaged in bitter wars himself Yeah, yeah, and not before conversion. He fought the Kalinga war as a Buddha, not yeah. pre-conversion. Yeah. So yeah. all that is there, but uh, yeah, the military culture always existed. That was how we were able to defend the invasions. Otherwise, it would have been impossible to defend any invasion of the magnitude that we have seen. But the good part is your martial culture never disrupted the peace of society. Correct. Which is Correct. one phenomenal. thing within india which you don't see anywhere else again uh, absolutely and and the underlying essence of i mean you see it so visibly all our gods are armed yes so we don't have gods carrying only flowers so so there are forms but yeah i mean there is yeah. nothing like it is an aitha not necessarily a weapon yeah. but but yes i see what you are saying devatas uh, are protectors they are armed yeah yeah there is this question that comes up very often is that the asuras are often shaivite and i know that it's not always true but asuras follow a shaivite tradition and the devas are vaishnavite by and large it's not to say that the devas don't revere shiva 
But the Asuras are more Shaivite, the Devas are more, which is why Vishnu intervenes every time to put down the devotees of Shiva. And since part of me comes from Kerala, uh, it always rankles to me that uh, you have a king, you have a righteous king, even our tradition sees him as righteous. I don't know in what nature is Adharmic other than displacing Indra, but Mahabali, who is sort of put down by the Vamana Avatara. And Vamana is also impressed sufficiently enough to give him a boon in return. Uh, But there seems to be this distinction where the Asuras, the bad Asuras, the bad guys are always Shiva worshippers. So even a Pralada as an Asura is a Vishnu worshipper is never a bad guy. But the bad guys, uh, the interesting thing is none of the bad guys are ever atheists. They are all Shiva worshippers at all time and they sometimes they invoke the Devi as well. Um, they almost never invoke Vishnu or any of the Vishnu avatars. And the question is, is this reflective of anything? But is there, is it, is it informing us of something that was happening in terms of different traditions? Uh, or is it talking about an older Shaivite approach being taken over by, which is more practical in its orientation, take, being taken over by a philosophical uh, culture, uh, so to say? So, it's not a tradition rivalry, basically. That far, you can clearly say. There is a very logical reason why uh, people worship uh, Brahma, Shiva, Devi, get their wounds. Primarily, Devatas. What is the difference between Devatas and Asuras? Both come from the Prajapati. Yeah. One is invested in Dharma. Therefore, one got immortality. The other is not invested in Dharma. All his actions are not Adharmi. But his anchor of life is not Dharma. It is all that is saying. So, Ravana would have done great things also. But his anchor of life is not Dharma. It could be pleasure, it could be power, it could be anything. It is not Dharma. And that is where the Devatas are always different. They they are primarily invested in Dharma. And the one who keeps Dharma and the worlds in order is the preserver Vishnu. Therefore, that is the reason every every time a problem comes, these people go to Vishnu. The right way of thinking of it is Vishnu is the preserver and therefore sets rules. Uh, whether it is rules for following dharma. Shiva doesn't, it doesn't matter to Shiva whether you follow the rules or not. So Shiva is more accepting of everybody. He's more Advaitin in that sense. No, 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 no. So he also is invested in dharma, but it is not his primary job to protect it in the world. That job belongs to, that portfolio is somebody else's. Right, right. So he will limit himself to what he is doing. And there is a common principle for every Devata, right? They are bound by the mantra. If somebody calls, they will have to come. So every Devata is bound by the mantra and tapas. If somebody right. does to certain level, and obviously nobody will be an atheist because atheist cannot generate that level of tapas. So if you have a certain level of power where you can displace Indra, you cannot achieve it without that level of tapas. But you can see the difference between Ravana and his son. Ravana has done the tapas. He got the boons. He was able to establish a very powerful uh, uh, empire for the Rakshasas. 
but it was indrajit meghanada who was able to defeat indra he became indrajit correct but that he was able to do after doing yagna to please the devatas right that is that is how it works <laughs> and then ravana actually critics him uh-huh. you should do the tapas to please brahma and rudra you should not do yagnas that empower the devatas because they are your enemies but this guy actually does it and he demonstrates that that is how you can even defeat them so indra was not defeated by ravana he was defeated by indrajit after he was able to do the yagnas yeah so <laughs> and again eventually the asuras uh, take a claim towards the havis whatever yagnas are done the yagna havis they receive all those that, that, that is there but this is the reason you see the asuras worshiping shiva and devi uh, is the character of mahabali um, bali so festival even today celebrated with great yes, yes. bali is celebrated as a virtuous man yeah and uh, therefore why would i mean so it's always and it seems vamana intervenes to protect indra's seat uh, against a righteous king who's put down and is uh, his his coming back is even today celebrated as a major festival uh, in in kerala it seems a bit i mean it, it, it's unclear or maybe there is no answer immediately it's a bit unclear as to why that it is not difficult to see because there is a bali he is personally virtuous he has done the yagnas given danas everything but ultimately he has a rivalry with indra and indra is the protector of dharma in the world so if you have assaulted devatas you are eventually assaulting dharma also in a way that is so one level of answer let let me and so therefore just put put that under some a bit of a microscope is the role of indra because indra has also committed lots of unspeakable things um whether it is trying to seduce another man's wife or it is trying to interfere with somebody's tapasya all kinds of things that are not very charitable yes. um he obviously is not as much of an adherent to dharma as very often thought of and so therefore the intervention uh, in favor of indra who who obviously <laughs> see indra is not a human rama was yeah. born vishnu was born as rama yeah, yeah. he lived yeah. by dharma yeah and so dharma them. and he also practiced it as a human and devatas so are not going to have the same code of conduct as humans right so whatever indra does is within his uh, code of conduct let us say he has come to test or violate uh, some woman or whatever all this can be easily put into context where if somebody takes claim to a higher word you should also have that level of resilience in your being otherwise you, you are just not qualifying to scale up so this is also one of the explanations indra himself gives in the veda for people who ask why are you doing all these things so it's not as if he is trying to corrupt you but unless you qualify by demonstrating your incorruptibility you can't qualify for the higher word otherwise you are just like any other mortal uh, qualifying for the normal uh, 
common man's life so therefore again going back to the mahabali example is just the intervention of vamana it i mean it doesn't seem if, if it's a righteous king why should vamana intervene has always been not necessarily yeah, that that that's what so one is he is actually going directly having a rivalry with uh, the devatas right who are supposed to be the protectors of the in the world and then bali being virtuous does not mean the asuras are virtuous his generals are there soldiers are there his uh, battalions are there they are just going uh, around rampaging right it's not as if bali being there has uh, suddenly started saving the world from rakshasas right they are still <laughs> now he has only empowered the rogues <laughs> so he still has to be eliminated even if he is virtuous person or anything right so logically you can see why he has to be removed but at the same time he being virtuous he should not be penalized for what everybody has done so he is reinstated with honor and he is given immortality what any no other rakshasa would receive right so he is also receiving all the good things that he would because of being virtuous then there are two other touch points just before we conclude and is one there is the character of parshurama and then i come from parshurama kshetra both my parents yeah. from there so uh, held in high reverence we, we actually call our land also parshurama kshetra uh, parshurama kshetra parshurama also installed lots of our important temples uh, instituted various kinds of worship etc parshurama is also avatar of vishnu but he goes he ends up not as a very nice guy i mean towards as you get to the ramayana there there is a bit of uh, i mean he's not in as we see it today with our modern uh, sort of code of ethics you will say already he's not such a nice guy uh, yeah. he thinks and, and rama also pushes back against him and then he retreats um there is that one element to parshurama and it's another matter where one king does wrong to you and you clean out 21 generations of his tribe uh, or right. when the tribe it is all the kshatriyas yeah uh, it's not just some innocent kshatriyas also wiped out so so that is the nature of parshuram then there is the other avatar of narsimha Uh, and, and i think it is it is also true for so narsimha after having done what he was born to actually as i understand it become goes out of control and then shiva has to come and subdue him so it's also not so here are two characters and i think varaha is somewhat similar but essentially their continued existence became difficult for mankind is probably the better way of putting it and so therefore Shiva had to intervene, or Devi had to. Yeah, so just like, remove the anthropomorphic uh, context to it. Imagine that it's not one guy who came down. Right. You put a fire, and now it has grown up. Yeah. You don't know what to do with it. No. Eventually, it has to. So it's basically it's a power that is involved. It has come down. It won't stop when you want it to stop, right? It 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 has its potential to destroy. once it is unleashed for a destructive purpose and that has happened and eventually the correction has to happen of course it is divine and it will ensure that eventually all that is overdone has some context to it and all that i mean right 
right leave that philosophical right <laughs> causation aside but right. even in a normal terrestrial logic you have unleashed the power it will do it it's uh, it will not stop it our wish it will stop it it's on uh, its potential has to exhaust so there will definitely be overdoing in everything for what duryodhana had done the full 18 akshavanis had to be wiped out because it was not one guy's wrong or right or anything it is a your civilization morality has hit a rock bottom and you needed a full wipe out of the whole uh, ruling group and then you reinstate it with the rightiest guys the right guys and then rebuild from there right this is what we see uh, with parashurama also parashurama's uh, overdoing or whatever is most easily relatable to mahabharata innocent or otherwise yeah things had gone wrong i mean in fact the kings had gone wrong you have to replace them you have to get a fresh breed of ruling class and in fact he has given it back to chatriyas only right it's not as if he has replaced them with uh, brahmanas or shudras or anybody it was eventually given back to them so it, that breed had to be replaced from a rogue uh, and it will obviously involve all that uh, you know uh, overdoing there will be innocents losing life all that will happen in every war mahabharata war had seen deaths of so many innocents now karmically whether they deserve it all not you have to go into each guy's life and see how that came now and how he would see the next life and previous life all those things but whether that is justified whether that will even out karmically or not if you believe in karma theory yes that eventually for every individual it would even out in some way or the other no, true but my <laughs> sense is very often we look at i mean my my sort of there have been some struggle in my head at one time but i Uh, my my sense is that very often we tend to look at lot of these characters lot of this imagery from a modern viewpoint of what is ethical and what is not what is moral or what is not uh, and obviously morality has changed over the centuries over over the millennia this is who we are we have all our differences we have all these uh, sort of shaky yeah shaky approaches you might see when you look at it from a hardwired modern day uh, uh, ethics perspective but that is who we are i mean that is our reality and it is despite that reality that our levels of knowledge are far deeper uh, so it's not something that we need to be ashamed or embarrassed about but it is just who we are i mean that's that is it and do the right thing what you define as why what your intrinsic nature is that is what is going to sustain forever yeah you try to be something that you are not you can't sustain it yeah yeah so they they seems to be in public discourse and i'm talking about all kinds of people not necessarily just the leftists when we talk in certain talking terms of hinduism the reference points are normally in the north uh i find it i mean i receive it very poorly as a south indian all your reference points you give from the north so north south yeah there is is there a difference yes there is a uttarapatha there is a dakshinapatha uh but what exactly is the difference do we have integration themes across yes 
are the 12 jyotirlingas 18 chakrapitas or the vishnu kshetras all these spread across the entire geography absolutely yes your 56 deshas have all this sacred geography so it's not as if from the spiritual landscape perspective there is any dichotomy at the same time you have language difference you have deshas again these are the geocultural units so under unless we understand the desha as a cultural unit we don't appreciate fully the uh, landscape how it is working yeah so there is, yes there are the devadeshas there are uh, these dakshinapatha uh, uh but uh, in the center is where you have the let us say the mahishmati around narmada below that is what you call as dakshinapatha then you had uh, uh as you agastya is the one you said right, where the vindhya example is given from where typically he, the narrative builds that uh, he has established things down south and things like that that is there but probably sometime in the past that would have happened but is there any difference spiritually no is there any difference politically no because you had empires coming from andhra from the down south who have uh, ruled magadha also and then you have people uh, accept so acceptability in political sense was not a problem back then it is a problem more probably today <laughs> uh, where you have acceptance pan indian acceptance is not very easy to gain uh, so how many modern factors are influencing this is what we will need to see right ancient factors yeah there is a difference there is a diversity that is, that never probably indicates to you a difference in acceptability or uh, civilizational icons or anything in fact if you see the whole uh, landscape you have four forms land forms right you have a punya bhumi karma bhumi gnana bhumi and tapo bhumi mm-hmm. and you have these pockets across so tapobhumi typically is that badri kedar that kind of region but you have tapobhumi elsewhere also we have punyabhumi sacred uh, places everywhere then you have karmabhumi around uh, you know probably south central and uh, part of maratha region the, that kind of regions so this is very clearly understood what is the nature of each landscape what is the best kind of practice spiritual practice suited to that region so some regions you know they excel in poetry some they excel in karma kanda some they excel in tantra practices so again it wise back to that desha and i was saying the geography earlier right the bangal has its own unique practices kashmir has its own unique practices madhya desha has its own unique practices so where is it is more suitable but everybody knew that bharatavarsha was there uh, never as a political unit but in fact the political history is there anyway that yeah. ashwamedha rajasuya vaishnava were all there they were trying to politically unify but that's a different story but was that bharata or was it around the world was it global so if somebody did a okay in yeah i mean they did go beyond bharata they never had a restriction to stop it bharata but bharata was very clearly understood yeah so beyond that let us say you have the ganastana upaganastana there were peripheral regions aryavarta is the central core then you have the gana then you have the upaganastanas then you have outer regions the mecha regions all so that geography again that is like koshas right you have yeah, the story yeah. the outer sheets and all that where there is a loose practice and then you have a 
outer circle where uh, you can time to time you can have spheres of influence but they will never permanently come under uh, uh, dharma right geographically that was very clear but politically let, let's see the political aspect in its own perspective but spiritually or culturally that difference uh, is always seen as a continuity uh, and with these questions it's not as if these regions were isolated or anything right if you want to put a chronology to it these people invaded that region then civilization developed all that that becomes a very different story so it's not as if uh, there is a very clean linear chronology from uh, east to west or west to east or north to south it was all over right right and so then if we if we went to the last bit which is why i mean there is a the modern indian reason or in the last 3 400 years there might be a need to define yourself as hinduism just the agglomeration and then the logical pushback and has come from a couple of hundred years back is to say that uh, hinduism is the wrong phrase we are actually sanatana dharma so i mean with the eternal dharma following traditions the question that i have always had is i mean we when when we try and use nomenclature we are responding to an external narrative that has nomenclature and therefore we feel compelled to respond to it with nomenclature but if we want to say that the external narrative is uncalled for and it is misplaced uh, would it not be more appropriate to say that i actually refuse to give nomenclature to what i do and who i am yeah but can you, you who i am you may not like it but can you wish it away is the question and that so is the struggle yes you are right hindaviswaraj hindaviswaraj hindava and the, this nomenclature had to be done because you could not clearly geographically demarcate the insider and outsider yeah there was an outsider within the territory so you had to do a terminology around hindava Yeah. and then identify who is not in yeah so it's a practical necessity more than anything else and practical needs need to be met in a practical way you don't need to give a very accurate theoretical definition for what a hindu means yeah. nobody would really care yeah all that is required is you are able to differentiate the three m's from this the insider and outsider and a broad understanding i think at a hunch level everybody understands the difference yeah the problem comes with when you are putting a theoretical framework can you use that term can you have a hindu economy can you have a hindu state you can't because it's not a very theoretically ratified uh, concept yeah. so you have to have a dharmic state you have to have a dharmic social order you have to have a dharmic economy but you can have a hindu society and a hindu country so we need to separate these two aspects there is a case where you need an identity because you are countering an identity and without identity you are dissolved so it in my mind it plays into various things actually that's why i asked that question is that you are right in the sense of being confronted with an ism of one kind is that there is a need to sort of counter it or react to it like for example in our tradition and in our civilization and there may be a practical need for it today or whether there is or not i don't know i mean i challenge it i 
I don't like to talk in terms of a narrative set by somebody else. Is that border control? When you talk because about it's not a question of narrative, you have uh, the Abrahamics have an insider outsider very clear definition of believer non believer. That is the reality. So, so you will be treated as certain. So that is their narrative. Good for them. Let them live with it. No, 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 no. They are dealing with you. How are you dealing with them? Is so, my question. So, so correct. So that is their narrative. Here is what I would flag as I see it. Border control or passport control is probably uh, an outcome of imperialism in the last few hundred years. Uh, so the, the imperialist power sucked away the wealth. Um, and so if we, if we look at border control, yes, they were, you had to have papers, I guess, in ancient times to say that I come from this desha, etc. But there was no restriction. There was no restriction on migration. And as I understand it, Indian kings, yes, they ruled a territory, but it was more important for them to win the trust of the people because the people would farm the land and would use the land and generate yes, wealth. But geographical outsiders were carefully allowed. Let us say, Desha to Desha, Madhya Desha to Uttar Desha, maybe was quite easy. Huh. But if you are coming from, let us say, Sindh or somewhere, it would be very difficult to enter a UP region. So it's not as straight. So, but how, on what basis did they make this distinction? So, so I, my sense is, and I think, is that these modern boundaries that have come into existence, because the ancient past would happen is, if a king was unjust, villages would just move to a more just kingdom and they would be welcomed over there. In that context, when we accept hard nationalism as imposed by the British on India, we actually live, we are still playing their game because they gave a game to us. and we so This becomes a big topic. Nationalism is a very, you know, Correct. it gets into a different sphere. But do you have a geopolitical boundary and uh, do you honor it? And what would be the terms to honor it is probably what we can deal with. So, so my question, therefore, is should we accept the geopolitical boundary as defined by the British at one time? Because some of our disputes with our neighbors, particularly, let's say a country like Bangladesh, which as a state is willing to be partners with you, but there are inherent problems uh, that exist in terms of migration, in terms of how minority communities are treated over there by their population, not necessarily by their state. There is then the issue of how we deal with China and how China deals with us and whether the borderline is a construct that the British put together where they grabbed some part of Tibet. No, and see, the, really con the concept of border is not new. Yeah. It's not a modern concept. The concept yeah. of border is ancient. Yes. Yes. The current border line is British drawn and it's a problematic thing which we can redraw. Correct. And but, but there the is people moving across border. No, that also is not very uh, modern. So there were always times when uh, you have an inimical uh, neighbor. Incoming and outgoing is very suspicious. It was not as smooth as uh, travel between friendly deshas, friendly rajas. Unfriendly rajas always had attention. They, there were spies around. There was very careful scrutiny on who is coming, who is allowed in, who is not allowed. So this is a natural dynamic that is valid at all times. And it was valid not just in this subcontinent, it was valid between uh, Rome and Greece, between Carthage, everywhere it was true. 
that is going to be a universal phenomenon even in the future so i i do accept that they were those borders because kings ruled to a certain territory uh what i'm not as sure of uh, uh and it's not a challenge it's just that there is i am not sure it is there the data is there is that people were prevented they may have been watched but were they prevented from migrating from one place to the other uh so we had so many that is purely to the dis- discretion of the king right so if he he wants he would allow if he does not want he would not allow right right absolutely so it it was not a universal rule that we have now come to accept that yes yes border control which put in border control so we must each one of us think necessarily and you have to deal with it as it comes right and according on your own terms of course right right and, and so therefore it is uh, so when when i think in terms of the hardwiring of the term hindu it it has this implication for some of these things uh well, that's what so if you have a rajya it would be a dharmic rajya it would not be a hindu rajya yeah yeah so those contexts where you need a very clear theoretical definition you can't use the term hindu you have to use the appropriate term right and that solves the problem in a common uh, uh, social angle where you are uh, separating a hindu from a non hindu that works okay i mean it's a very practical distinction and that's good enough correct that the so i think debate debate happens more in terms of for us in modern india let us say you are defining a hindu rashtra it is very difficult thing to define because sure, sure. no because i mean neither hindu so i'm talking in terms of a comment that might come i'm not saying from whom or where but let's say that everybody which i am i more subscribe to is that whoever lives in india or, or bharat is a hindu and therefore it's a geographical description so regardless of what god you follow you are it was yeah today it's not anymore a geographical description so so it has become like that but you we do find comments that come from various leaders at different times saying muslims in india are also hindus i think i completely agree with that uh because because, it, because what what happens to a practicing vaishnava in us that fellow is a hindu correct so it's no more geographic anymore correct correct and, and that's absolutely right uh so when you go to a far flung place like bali they say oh you are a hindu so it like, has got this religious uh, element to it and in my head i have always debated yes it does have the modern religious element to it and it is cast like this because for the last few hundreds of years this is how the world has developed but if you want the world to come out of that whole imperialistic framework that has been put whether we should whether we should continue to accept it as a reality or we should start pushing against it maybe initially as an intellectual thought rather than saying make it practical yeah, but it has a practical benefit in it so that's where we'll need to separate our formal systems from these practicing uh, aspects now indonesia is there us is there uk is there you are going to spread there yeah. now what term you want to give it is one aspect whatever word you give it it's going to be one word which is going to be very nebulous it will never have a clear theoretical definition yeah. Yeah. so there is no harm with this word or that word problem <laughs> comes true if you are using that term for creating formal systems which we can't 
you are uh, i think that's 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 a very valid point i think just as you said creating a formal system around that word is probably where the challenge lies uh, in itself it is not so much of a problem um, because even in the law it is defined in an exclusive i mean it says if you are not a christian you are not a muslim so nebulous definition right i mean they which we everybody yeah. else is into exactly that's okay we can live with that yeah yeah maybe so i think yeah the practical benefit part that i was coming to was the nation is one aspect anyway uh, i uh, understand i agree with you in that you can challenge the western concept of nation nation state more so yeah, yeah. and uh, that's one of the primary focus i have in my dharmarajya talk is that it's a matter of time in the coming decades the east is going to come up with challenging uh, concepts counter concepts about how the oriental notion of geopolitics works rajya whatever definitions needed probably they are going to come about those theoretical frameworks nation state he is going to be challenged is what i feel because that one nation one culture one language that's not the setup in which the orientals work yeah yeah that i agree fully that will have to redo that whole theories and then carve out our own systems formal systems yeah because in my mind it always bothers me that when we talk like that we are playing into the narrative of the imperial forces i mean they set us up like that yes, and yes. we play continue to play to their rules i mean all the notions that you have secularism is there propagation of religion is there yeah. your notion of uh, uh, social grouping is there all these are western concepts that that will definitely have to rework that theory that yeah. i fully agree but thanks i think we have had a longish chat uh, i think the sangam team same, is same here <laughs> yeah i don't know how many people will be interested yeah, in more of this long conversation but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but thanks we'll we'll probably uh, catch up there there are a few other issues that i thought were interesting yeah i think as a uh, probably continuation then we can take up the other traditions the temple mufti all these things Yeah, yeah practicing aspects and then probably the purana dating those aspects that we can yeah yeah so whenever you have the time we'll we'll circle back sure any time thanks shankara